if you have your Bibles, it's not a text as such. We will come to it at the end of the sermon, but Psalm 51, which was the psalm, our prayer of confession today. We've been looking at and trying to answer the question, where do we go from here? We find ourselves in a pandemic which has lasted far longer than anyone expected, and the consequences of which have been far-reaching in society, in the economy, the educational system, and the church as well. So as we begin to emerge, we think, from this situation, we need to come to grips with the issue of how the church will look and continue and how the church on Melrose will look and continue in the days to come. Thus far, what I did at the beginning was to try to lay a foundation of who we are. We are those who are called to faith and life in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we have been adopted into his family. We are those who have callings, which God has ordained and imposed on us even before he called us to be his children. We are people who live in the United States. This is where God has determined that we should live, and we are alive now in the year 2021. As those who live in the United States, we recognize that God is the ultimate authority. He is the basis of political authority. And something else, and I don't want to digress, but we are those as the people of God who do not have a religion. Okay, Is Christianity a religion? No, it is not. And to, again, quote from one of Dave's sermons, there are times when it becomes very clear to me that it must be clear to others that there's something silly about trying to make a religion out of truth. As people who live when and where we do, we recognize our obligations to obey those in authority. But we also recognize that we are exiles, unusual exiles, in that we have never been to the place from which we are exiled. And then we consider the fact that as exiles, we, are, we live in a culture, we are surrounded by a culture. Where, this is where God has put us, okay? There's no question about that. In which we find that there are practices, there are liturgies, which are quite different, if not in opposition to what God has told us. Liturgy points to practices, and liturgies make us certain kinds of people. They, they tell us or they, they prime us to approach the world in a certain way, to value certain things, to aim for certain goods, to pursue certain dreams, and to work together on certain projects. And we live in a society in which the liturgies are quite different, if not opposite, to what we find in Scripture. Last Sunday, continuing in that vein, we looked at Paul's call to have the mind of Christ. We saw this on Palm Sunday, that in Christ we see his humility, but that ultimately his obedience led to his humiliation. We are to have the mind of Christ, but if we were to be honest, we don't always have the mind of Christ. And what is the cause of that? Why is that the case? In a word, it is because of idolatry. Idol or idols. We follow them. They, they set our minds in a particular way, our choices in our actions. As I asked last week, a question has been asked, how could German Christians cave in so weakly to the allure and coercion of National Socialism in the 1930s? And as I said last week, this is a very dangerous question for us to ask. 
in light of the fact that the church has caved in on so many fronts in our society in the present day. I mentioned last Sunday several passages which I find really intriguing. The one that we took as our text was 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. But also there were several from the Old Testament. And one in particular that really struck me was uh, in 1 Samuel 7, I believe it is, where the children of Israel are crying out to God. They're mourning for God because the Ark of the Covenant is not in Shiloh where it's supposed to be. It's in Kiriath-Jarim because the Philistines had taken it and all these things. And they come to Samuel, they're mourning, and Samuel says, okay, you need to get rid of the idols and the foreign gods. They're like, hold on a minute. You're mourning for the presence of God, and yet you, are, you have idols, you have foreign gods? Well, we should not be surprised, okay? As I said last week, idolatry, it turns out, is a t- always a temptation in a fallen world, which is why Calvin says in the Institutes, that our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. What is an idol? An idol is something we make to take the place of God. We know we have made an idol when the possible loss of something or someone creates an inappropriately dramatic reaction in us. The easiest route to finding out the truth about what our idols are is to look at the feelings we have. What gets us upset? What cheers us? What causes great anger or disappointment? What stresses us out? What drives us or makes us anxious? In other words, what is blackmailing us into believing something, believing something must result or someone must respond in a certain way before we can be at peace and joyful? Naming our idols is, an, is important because as long as we are possessed by them, we will not be free. Only God can give us freedom. Only the freedom which comes with enjoying the good things of life as gifts rather than idols can give us peace and joy. Last week I mentioned three, sort of, actually four, idols in today's world. The first is authority or power. That's one. One A is authority as preference. In other words, I, I, I can choose if I want to obey or not. The second was modernity, and the third was security. Fear tempts us to make safety and security, self-preservation our highest goals. And if we do so, then our moral focus really becomes about protecting our lives and our health. And security becomes the new idol. I think during this pandemic, it has has become an even greater temptation than before. Okay, it's been said that nature abhors a vacuum. So if we get rid of the idols, What are we to put in its place? One could easily say, well, you're to have the mind of Christ. You're to be marked by humility and obedience. And such an answer would not be wrong. I would say it's a good place to start. There has to be more. I think that many Christians have, in fact, abandoned the field, and they've left it to pastors, to theologians, to experts, And so there is a vacuum. And what tends to happen is that the idols or the liturgies surrounding us come back into that vacuum. The problem I think that the church faces today, in part, and this is my opinion, is that of vocabulary. In chapter six of Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, Alice meets Humpty Dumpty who she recognizes immediately since she knows about him from the nursery rhyme. 
Humpty is a bit irritable, but he turns out to have some thought-provoking notions about language, and philosophers of language have been quoting him ever since. Quote, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That is all. This was published in December of 1871, and yet I think it says so much to what surrounds us today. Linguistics, neurolinguistics, biolinguistics, psycholinguistics, um, we find that it's quite confusing. Words have been, re have been defined, redefined, and then re-redefined, if you wish. Um, Colorado State has been in the news because they put out a list, Colorado State University, they put out a list of banned words or phrases that their students are not to use. Um, he, she, Mr., Mrs., Ms. Yeah. But also, long time no see. Can't say that. Because originally it was mocking Native Americans or Chinese pidgin English. Uh, hold down the fort. Can't say that. That's too militaristic. That's like trying to keep the outsiders out. As one person has put it, those who would redefine reality by changing the meanings of words would be our masters. And that's what Humpty Dumpty said. The question is who will be the master? What we find in our society is that the truer a statement is, the more liable it is to incur the wrath of the cancel culture. What we find is that words are being banned or prescribed, or for many Christians, I think, being redefined. And I think the church may be guilty here um, in, in this regard. I think in many ways, the church sees itself as possessing theology, doctrine, abstractions, okay? which have to be communicated by words, no question, okay? And it requires a certain vocabulary. Well, to have that vocabulary, maybe you have to go to seminary, you have to learn Greek, you have to learn Hebrew. Um, you just have to have the expertise, read some theology, and then you will know what these words mean. You can do a word study. We think, as Christians, that the battle is in the world of ideas, the realm of, of words, rather than ideas. But in our society, words can have different meanings. And so I think the average Christian may feel at a loss, feeling like, I can't really communicate the truth clearly, because I haven't gone to seminary, I haven't learned the original languages, and I haven't read any theology. This is all kind of weird when you think about it because that's not what the Bible does. The Bible is not a dictionary. The Bible is not a textbook. It is not a theological work, which means in part that you don't have to have advanced degrees in theology. You don't have to have a knowledge of Hebrew or Greek. You don't have to have theological works as resources. None of these are bad to have. Okay, they can be quite helpful. But I would stop and think about this a minute. When you look over the history of the church since the first century to now, 
How many Christians over the past 20 centuries have had these things? Theological works, knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, um, advanced degrees in theology. I think it would be generous to say 1%. Then how has the church survived? How have Christians remained Christians? They have done so because, consciously or not, they have embraced what the Bible has given them. And what has the Bible given us? The Bible has given us stories which illustrate and define the truths of the gospel. And I would suggest to you that if we are to rid ourselves of idols, we are to reacquire biblical literacy. We need to know the stories of Scripture. Now, sadly, I think for many people, the stories of Scripture are for Sunday school, are for the children. And I would say, no, they are not. They are the embodiment, they are the demonstration, they are the illustration. This is what this word means. And we've lost that. It's like, well, I, you know, I haven't been to seminary, I, I don't know Greek, so I, I... No, we have Scripture. And how do you think the people of God have survived all these centuries? It's precisely because Scripture defines these words. I want us to consider some examples. Um, I will lim- limit myself. Um, we've looked at these in the past, and so it'll be somewhat of a review. Um, but I want you to recognize that some of the words that we are familiar with have been redefined by the church, by ourselves, by others, and therefore have come to mean less or something different than what God intended. And what we need to do is go back to Scripture and see how it is that these stories define these words. The first word is joy. Joy. As James opens his book after the greeting, we read what must have sounded so strange to his first readers, and now, all these centuries later, still seems strange to us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What could James mean by joy when he wrote something so provocative? The noun form is joy, the verb form is to rejoice. And while we find these two words in English, there are a number of words used in Hebrew and Greek, a dozen in Hebrew, half a dozen in Greek. You're like, wait a minute, Damon. You said that, in fact, we don't need to know Hebrew or Greek, and that's right. What we need to do is to go to Scripture to see how this word is defined. In the Old Testament, rejoicing is a word that we find, and it is usually in the context of a festival or a feast. In Numbers chapter 10, verse number 10, it's referred to as times of rejoicing. Let me read to you what it said. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, while not all of these feasts are in fact spoken of with the word rejoicing specifically, we do have the designation times of rejoicing. These are times of joy. They are to be celebrated. That should tell us something. Passover, um, the time uh, of Passover, it's so important because this is when God delivered his people out of slavery and out of Egypt. Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are with related to harvest, 
but we are told rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Purim, um, which happened fairly recently, is to celebrate God's delivering his people through Esther. It is a time of rejoicing, a time of joy. So we are to remember, first of all, that there's to be rejoicing in, conge- in connection with remembering. This is what God has done in the past. It is to be done with thanksgiving. Secondly, past deliverance gives us hope for the future, that God, in fact, will deliver us in the future. And thirdly, there is to be joy in the present. So joy is rejoicing at what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. The second word I'd like us to consider is the word faith. And as one writer put it, faith is a word that has had poor press in the 20th century. Many regard it as simple-mindedness and an expression of an uncritical spirit inappropriate to men and women who have come of age. That's why people talk about faith versus reason. I would add that in the church, faith has been much abused and reduced to a simplistic, if not magical, formula. It's been redefined. Faith comes to mean whatever it is, as Humpty Dumpty said, you want it to mean We're told by some in the church that if one believes hard enough with the right quality of belief, one can get or obtain whatever he or she desires. For all the problems that the 20th century and now the 21st century has with the word faith, at least something they've gotten right is that faith and believing are the same. That if one has faith, one in fact is believing. What does that mean? Well, the beginning of faith, as we see it in Scripture, is found in Genesis chapter 12. It begins with Abraham, when God calls him. And in fact, in the New Testament, he is seen as the expression of faith. He is our leader, our our example when it comes to the matter of faith. We are told, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is quoted, by the way, at least three times in the New Testament. And as wonderful as this statement is, I, I fear that if we take it in isolation, we will misunderstand it, and that's quite dangerous. If you think that believing is, seri- is merely assenting, you say that, okay, I believe that what you say is true, then we've, we have redefined faith to mean something other than what God intends. In the story of, in the story of Abram, who would later become Abraham, we can't separate the promises from the commandments. God commanded him, leave your father's house and go, and he did that. There was a command and he obeyed. There's an inner orientation toward behavior or from behavior. We shouldn't separate these. God's initiative, Abraham's response. Faith and obedience go together. We should not separate them. I think people have, and therefore faith now becomes, yes, you really have this strong wish that you'll get what you want. Let me just read to you the beginning of the story. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went 
as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram had, was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. You have a commandment, a promise, and you have Abram doing precisely what God told him to do. He commanded him, he made a promise, and Abram believed. So faith is not simply a response to God's promises, but to God himself. Abraham believed God. God entered into a covenant with him, and Abraham's believing was not simply about the promises, but the fact that God had made a covenant with him, signifying that they were in a relationship. This is incredibly important. I find it worth noting that in our world today, the opposite of faith is unbelief, specifically atheism. You're not a theist, you're an atheist. But in the Old Testament, and indeed throughout all history, the opposite of believing in God is believing in something else. There is a difference, however. Belief in God means that there is a relationship. You are in relationship with God, a personal relationship. God is a person. We are made in his image. And in fact, he calls us to be in relationship with him. And when we believe, that's precisely what happens. False religions lack or seek to imitate this, this aspect of truth. It should be noted that God's people were called to keep faith with God. That is, to be loyal to God, to be loyal to the covenant with God. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, the most prominent use of the word faith or belief or believing is in connection with Jesus' miracles. And we find Jesus healing in response to faith, either the one suffering or in some cases, like the man who was let down through the roof, the faith of others. And the picture that we have is, in fact, a practical trust in the power of God, specifically in the power of Jesus. They saw Jesus as the one who had the power, and they trusted him. One of the things that Jesus had to correct about people's thinking about faith or belief was that the big issue was quantity, that you, you need to have more faith. We find this in Luke 17. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. We want bigger faith. If it's about relationship, you're either in a relationship or you're not. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The third word is the word prayer. And this is something we have studied quite a bit over the years. What is prayer? Prayer is answering speech. God initiates a conversation, we answer in prayer. That real prayer is a dialogue. It discloses a genuinely personal relationship. I don't think the majority of Christians today think of prayer in that way. If there's a dialogue, they believe they begin the conversation by asking for something, and then God responds by answering. In Genesis 32, we have the story of Jacob. Jacob has come back after having run away, having cheated his brother, lied to his father. He comes back, and he finds out that his brother Esau is coming with 400 men. He's freaking out. He's scared. 
he divides up his possessions and his wives and children. Um, and at a certain point, this is verse number 24 of Genesis 32. So Jacob was left alone. And what do we read next? And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Jacob didn't start this situation. Jacob's alone. And somebody wrestles with him. You know, if somebody comes up to you and hits you, you have one of two choices. You can either run or you can stand and fight. But if somebody wrestles with you, you got no choice. You have to wrestle. Um, whether to, you know, to get away or to get up or to get away, but you can't be passive. You have to do something. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, apparently this man is wrestling with Jacob, but Jacob's not giving in. He's putting up a fight. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I don't know about you, that's just very strange to me. Somebody jumps you, wrestles with you, throws your hip out of joint, and then says, let me go. And you're like, no, not until you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Really? (laughs) You jump me and you don't know who I am? Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. It is in this experience that God initiates. God jumps Jacob. Okay that Jacob comes to see that God was the one who had been watching over him his whole life. He didn't need to cheat his brother. He didn't need to lie to his father. He didn't need to do strange monkey business with his father-in-law. That God was the one watching over him all along. God initiated. And I would say that God initiates in our lives by various circumstances, hopefully not as weird as what happened to Jacob, but in different things God brings into our lives He begins a conversation, and we are to respond in prayer. There's a story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. And I wasn't going to read, but let me just read the first six verses of 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Remathain, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. In case we missed it, it's, 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 we're told twice that it is God who closed her womb. God initiates the dialogue. And it is because of this and because of Penina, the other wife, 
this bitterness in Hannah, she cries out to God in prayer and makes a promise, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I could be wrong, and if I am, please correct me, but I think every instance of prayer found in Scripture is in response to God's initiative. If we're not careful, we will see prayer as something we do when we feel like it, rather than responding to God's gracious initiative in so many ways every day. The fourth thing that I look at is loving our neighbor. We have the story of the Good Samaritan that is familiar to most, in which a Samaritan shows love to his neighbor. It's quite dramatic because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. He doesn't know who this man is. This man is a stranger, and yet he shows love to him. What makes somebody a stranger? It's, I think, somebody who is without a place. And this man who had fallen among thieves is there left on the side of the road to die. He has no place to go. He is a person in need. In this story, the Samaritan saw a stranger who had been ambushed, who was in need, and who was without a place, who was alone. Two individuals had preceded the Samaritan, the priest and the Levite. They had the same opportunity to help, but they did not. One could say it's because they had religious duties. They needed to go to the temple up in Jerusalem and take care of things. Sacred task. But they both refused to help the stranger. The Samaritan did. He did something quite countercultural. He's a Samaritan. This guy's a Jew. Okay? They don't like each other. In fact, they hate each other. And yet he reaches out. He also does something that involves risk. If you think about it, it may be that the Levite and the priest did not want to stick around because the people who beat up this guy might still be in the neighborhood. And the Samaritan, who apparently, he had a donkey, he had some money, um, looks like a ripe target for me. He takes a risk and he helps this man. And thirdly, we see that it involved ongoing cost. He takes this man to an inn and he tells the innkeeper, look after him. And if, you know, when I come back, if I owe you any money, I will pay for it. The story is told by Jesus in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't give a definition, does he? He doesn't give a definition. He tells a story. And by the way, the question, who is my neighbor, is because of the question, what are the great commandments? To love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, Jesus said to the, to the lawyer, you're quite correct. You're quite correct in saying that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the the lawyer trying to make himself justified, like, well, I don't know who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. This is something that came up with another lawyer in Matthew 22. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. The first one I think we've always... Yeah, that's, but see, because we redefine love into this emotional, this warm, fuzzy feeling that we have toward God, we're okay. But then to love your neighbor as yourself, 
What is involved with that? Well, look at the Good Samaritan. To do something that is countercultural, that involves risk and ongoing cost. And when I do that, then in fact I am loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It isn't just this warm, fuzzy feeling. I am demonstrating the reality of my love for God by loving my neighbor. The fifth and the last is the word repentance. Repentance, I think, for many people has simply come to be seen as saying, I'm sorry. It is from our prayer of confession today that we learn what repentance is. I said it is our text today, Psalm 51. Look, if you would, as I read the first four verses. By the way, background, you know the story. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. He arranges for the murder, the killing of her husband. He is confronted by Nathan, and he repents. And this is what he says. Verse number one, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Verse number four, which interesting enough is not in our prayer of confession. Against you, you only have I sinned. I'm like, well, David, I beg to differ. You commit adultery with Bathsheba. You sinned against her. You arranged for the killing of her husband. I would say you sinned against Uriah. David says against you, you only have I sinned. We hear something very similar in the parable of the prodigal son when he returns to his father. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Several things to consider. We've looked at five things today. Joy, faith, prayer, loving our neighbor, and repentance. But have you noticed that all the stories, all the definitions that we find in Scripture, all lead back to God? They're all tied to God. In contrast, I would say, to dictionary definitions. So you look in the dictionary, joy, a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. That's what joy is. In Scripture... The stories we are told is that rejoicing, joy is connected with remembering what God has done in the past, thanksgiving and hope for the future, and just delight in the present because of what God has done. Faith, if you look in the dictionary, is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Well, faith in scripture is belief in God, which points to a real relationship with him, a personal relationship. And on and on it goes. If, in fact, we recognize the vocabulary of Scripture, we will begin to see how God sees these words and how we are to see them as well. Like, well, I think, think we need to work on our Greek, we need to work on our Hebrew and do word studies to find out what these words mean. No, we're, they're illustrated left and right if we would just listen. You want to know what prayer is? Look at the stories of people praying in Scripture. You'll find that it is, in fact, a conversation in which God begins the conversation. He initiates. 
I don't know what it means to love my neighbor. Really? Look at the Good Samaritan. I'm not sure what it means to repent. Read Psalm 51. I would argue that where the church is now, what we need is to get rid of idols and we need to recover, we need to relearn the vocabulary of scripture. We need to learn, relearn the stories of scripture. And not simply accept conventional meaning, meanings, definitions, or definitions we have given our, these words ourselves. We live in a world of Humpty Dumpties. Not simply outside the church, but in the church as well. Who assert that when they use a word, it means just what they choose it to mean. As I said, one person has said, those who would redefine reality by changing the meaning of words would be our masters. And we must say no. Not at all. We will not accept this. Can you imagine? I would... I don't know what the numbers are. I would say there's, there's a good possibility that the majority, maybe it's 51%, of Christians throughout the centuries have been illiterate. They heard scripture when they went to church. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have language skills. But they heard the stories of scripture. And those stories shaped their understanding of what these words mean. I don't know what prayer is. Oh, remember the story of Jacob? Remember the story of Hannah? Remember when these people cried out to God because God had brought a situation into their lives? That's what prayer is. Yeah, I don't know what it means to rejoice or to have joy. Mm. How about all the festivals we find in the Old Testament? Now, here at the end, I must give you a warning that you will find that the more biblical the meaning of a word, the more liable it is to incur the wrath of a system that stands in opposition to God and his people. The, I think society won't stand against us as long as they can mitigate the meaning of a word. Oh, yeah, prayer. Yeah, I do that, prayer. Faith, yeah, I, I believe. It's like, no, sir, no, ma'am. Faith is believing in God. It's having a personal relationship with God. Well, you can't put that on me. So as we seek to recover a literacy, an understanding of what these words mean based on our understanding of scripture, um, as we do that, shouldn't be surprised if we uh, incur the wrath of those around us. Because like Humpty Dumpty, they want to assert what they think a word means is that's what it means. That's their truth. And no, it is not. By God's grace, we are to stand with Scripture, be grateful that it is not a textbook, it is not a dictionary, it's not a theological work. It is God's revelation of himself in the lives of his people. And may we learn from that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which words and what they mean is cause of much controversy. 
at the street level as well as in the, the academy. Sometimes we think that we have to fight on that front. And we don't. These words are fleshed out. They are embodied in the stories that we find in Scripture. Because otherwise, why do we need these stories? We just, just give us a list of words and meanings and send us on our way. Help us to see that all of these words... They all go back to you. They're all tied to you. We tend to define them simply in terms of ourselves. Prayer is when I pray to God, forgetting that, in fact, you spoke first. Joy is when I feel happy, when, in fact, I'm to rejoice at what you have done in my life. And on it goes. Speak to our hearts, I pray, by your Spirit. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your Word, that as we read it, as we study it, we will come to see the truth of what is. And by your grace, give us the strength to stand up to whatever opposition may come our way. We do not know what the church at large will look like after this pandemic. We do not know what the church on Melrose will look like after this pandemic. It is your church. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He didn't say it wouldn't go through difficult times. But may we look to you rather than our own inventiveness, our own ingenuity, Look to your grace, your guidance. May we be filled with your spirit as we walk through this world. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. For those that are listening online, I ask your blessing on them as well. I pray in Jesus' name.